Bienvenido and thank you for listening to the Word con Sazón podcast, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos. The following message was given at Reconcile Church in the city of Miami by Pastor Aldo Leon. For more information about the church or the pastor, please go to our show notes below. We are in Acts, and for, for, for those of you who uh, are not familiar with what we do here, listen, um, you may ask, like, why, why did the pastor and preacher um, get up and preach um, from Acts chapter 12 about people getting killed and thrown in jail? Like, you know, what, what's up with that? Um, we, we open up a book of the Bible, and we walk through the whole book. So we don't just pick bite-sized uh, text messages from God's book and say whatever you want to say and then kind of uh, overlook the rest. We see the whole email, the whole text conversation of the Bible, and we walk through it. So it so happens that you're here today on a day where people are getting uh, killed and locked up, and God is talking about it. So, but this is important because um, right before this, in Acts, if you guys remember, two weeks back, what was happening? God was doing revival. Like, th- this place is called Antioch, where there was a lot of non-Jewish people that never heard the gospel were getting saved. So God's moving, people are getting saved. Oh my gosh, the Apostle Paul comes and, 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 and he begins to teach and man, great stuff, exciting stuff. And guess what? Now, right after that, people start dying. People start getting thrown in jail. And it's like, that guy, like, like why did you like, kind of like, uh, why did you, why'd you rain on the parade of Acts? We were getting so into it. Um, why do you follow something so high with something so low. Beloved, do you know why this is important? Because we as a church tend to be addicted to highs. We are addicted to highs. And so we just want God to cruise control us on the highs of, of, of Christianity. And we want to pull the e-brake when he goes down a valley. But beloved, Christianity is God working through highs and lows to show that it's not so much the journey and how the journey is, high or low, but the God we trust through highs and lows, no matter what is going on, whether it being high or low. And so what we learn, beloved, is that God's kingdom is paradoxical. Now, when I say paradoxical, I mean it's just, it's kind of like contrary, don't make sense. So here's, a, here's, a, here's an example of this. Um, we win by losing, okay? Um, we move forward by moving backwards. So the reason why there is this high in chapter 11 and this low in chapter 12 is because God wants to show us how this paradoxical kind of backwards kingdom of ups and downs is how God works. Beloved, I think one of the things that I see that Christians are so struggling with is that you don't understand how to trust God in those low moments of church. And you leave, and you go look for some victorious Christianity that sells you some victorious, never-ending high. And guess what? You don't you realize that it's not really real, and then you stumble even more. But that's why we have this text here. So as we consider God's kingdom being a paradox, highs and lows, here's the first thing I want to draw attention to. And I'm going to read the text as I go because it's really long. It's 
we're, we're preaching the whole chapter of 12 today. So look, first thing I want to draw out in these ups and downs is that, that God's kingdom is resistant to personal popularity. It's resistant to personal popularity. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked someone who belonged to the church. And he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. So, man, God's moving, people getting saved, and an apostle gets beheaded. One of the 12. One of Jesus' inner circle gets his head cut off. And Peter gets put in jail. Why? Why, why does God put this? Why, why does God, in the moment of revival, put the world and a king responding so negatively? Well, because God wants us to get over the obsession that we're going to be popular in the world for Jesus. Just shake that off, okay? That's never going to happen. We are always going to be more like, we'll be less like the kids in school that were very popular, that were athletic, and everyone who wanted to sit next to them. The church will always be those weirdos and the other end of the cafeteria no one wants to sit in. Okay? That will always be the case. We will never, in being gospel-centered, be really liked by the culture. That never happens. If it does happen, it's likely you have capitulated and sold out Jesus for culture. I'm not talking about that we're not going to reach people. But, beloved, we will never stop being the religious dork. And we will never move to be the religious cheerleader. I'm sorry if you were a cheerleader. That will never happen. So Paul gives this story of death to show that, look, here's a text that I really like. It's 1 Corinthians 1.20. Paul is kind of talking about this popularity of Christianity that, 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 that some people in the church are trying to advance. Look what he says. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. For God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For Jews act for signs. They were all into God impressed us with some impressive miracle. Jews seek for wisdom. Tell us some gospel that makes sense to our philosophizing, but we preach Christ crucified, okay? A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So this gospel we preach, this Christianity we preach, everyone thinks it's ridiculous in the culture. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom, now, I'm going to do something different. Normally, I, I apply the text at the end. I'm going to start applying the text throughout and see if that works a little bit better. We'll see. Maybe I'll go back to it. But listen, if, 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 if the gospel is resistance to worldly popularity, then we need to embrace, beloved, humble simplicity as Christians. Listen, Christians, and I say this to you, you're trying to be cool for Jesus way too much, Okay? You're trying to get some kind of earthly credibility, some kind of prominence, some kind of earthly kind of status to impress people with Jesus. Beloved, that's never, ever, Jesus not make, Jesus and the Holy Spirit does not need you to make Jesus look cool to culture. He doesn't need that. He never has. Okay? We need to embrace humble simplicity. 
as opposed to this obsession to try to make Jesus impressive to people by some kind of cultural impressiveness about us. You know, like I, I don't know one time, like uh, there was this pastor, I won't say who he is, but he was on the internet and he was like, you know, bench pressing and he's like, yeah, bench 300 for Jesus. Stop that stuff, okay? Bench pressing does not make Jesus look cool. Jesus makes him look cool. The gospel does. Bench pressing for Jesus. Get out of here with that. Resistant to personal popularity. Number two, God's kingdom that's paradoxical is indifferent to earthly powers. Indifferent to earthly powers. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. So notice something. The earth, the earth begins to, the, 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 the government and the earthly powers begins to push against the church. And where does God go to, to to address this? He goes to the church in prayer. Basically, what God is saying is, listen, we don't need the government to fix our spiritual issues. Governments, they fix common issues, but all of a sudden, Herod, a governmental king, begins to put his foot in the church, and what, do the, what, what, does, what does the author of Acts go to? He goes to the church in prayer. Listen, we need government help to do our job the same way Turkey Point, how many of y'all know what Turkey Point is? If y'all don't know, we live next to a nuclear power plant, about 10 miles that way. We need government help to do our job the way Turkey Point needs matches and gasoline, okay? Now, I think if we were to see how Christians respond to government pressure, you know, we would have, we would, we would hey, let's go to Jerusalem and let's do a march protesting Peter being locked up by Herod, okay? Let, let, let's go there and, or maybe let's, let's, let's go commando style and like, let's get them out of jail because they can't be doing this to us. Or, or we would go on Facebook and tweet all of these kind of, cliches about oppressors, and that's not fair, right? Right? Go on, please. Or, or we would start a panel. Let's start a panel where we discuss issues and, and solutions. And, and we would probably want to go to all these worldly solutions. But the church does not do that. The church goes to the church with gospel solutions. The church goes to the church as it deals with the pressure and the pushing so, beloved, we don't need we don't need Christianity in the White House. We don't need Christianity in schools. I'm sorry if that bothers you. We don't need Christianity in anything. We need Christianity to be in the church, beloved. And we need the water of baptism, the bread of the gospel pointed to the table, and the word of truth and prayer, and we got what we need to do our mission. So when the church is having all of this difficulty says, look, we don't need earthly power to do our thing. You know, we don't need Donald Trump to be friendly to Christianity to do our thing. It doesn't matter who's in office. We need Jesus in heaven. He has three offices. He is our prophet who reveals gospel truth. He is our priest who made a sacrifice for us. And he's a king who rules and protects the church. Because he is in our office, we good. We don't need earthly power. Second point. Third point is that, actually, you know what? I'm going to uh, skip the third point, and I'm going to move to the fourth point. 
I'm going to move to the fourth point. Is that all right? Can I do that? Okay, good. Because I would have done it anyways. <laughs> it's also, God's kingdom is also blind to favorable situations. God's kingdom is blind to favorable situations. Let me read. This is a long part, so bear with me. So when he saw that it pleased the Jews, James getting beheaded, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of of four soldiers each to guard him. Talk about overkill. Four squads of of four soldiers each to guard him. Intending to bring him out, bring out people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. So get this out. Peter's locked up, and there's two guards that are sleeping to chained to him. And on top of that, there's guards outside of that, and, and there's guards outside of that. Um, so it, he's pretty much confined, okay? Suddenly, an angel Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on his side, woke him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed and did not know what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, so Peter's getting, escaping from prison, and he's like, I'm probably dreaming. I don't even know this is happening, but it was. After they passed the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened them by itself. Then they went outside and passed over one street, and immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grass." And all the Jewish people expected. So, beloved, let me just say what, 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 what Luke, whose right acts, is doing here. He's basically showing us that God is working through absolutely impossible things. So, impossible thing number one, one of your primary leaders gets his head chopped off. Impossibility number two, your other primary leader gets locked and imprisoned and gets chained in a million ways over. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> Impossibilities does not matter. Now, this is important, is important to us because I think we tend to think about Christianity kind of like a business person, right? We look at the risks. We look at the, you know, is this possible? Is this likely? And we say, okay, I think it makes sense. Because I, I, I'm a church planner. A church planner is someone who thinks they're, 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 it's crazy enough to start a new church from the ground up. Okay, I'm a church planner. And oftentimes when I would stand in front of, uh, you know, people that were potentially going to give me money, they would be like, how many people you got? So if you have a lot of people, we think we'll get behind you. Why? Because that's how we think. How possible, how humanistically likely is this thing going to work? But what we see here is that God does not need possibilities or likely. He doesn't need that. He works through impossibilities all the time. I mean, the Bible is like that. Okay? Remember the Moses story? Moses is in front of an ocean, and behind him is an army of, of trained soldiers, and somehow, with a piece of wood, he goes through the ocean, and they all drown. Okay? Remember the Gideon story? 
Gideon had all these crew, all these people, and God's like, send them away. Send them away. Send them away. He dropped it to 300, and these dudes have pots and like a torch. So <laughs> 300 dudes with, we're not, <laughs> you know, a, a pot and, and, and a candle go up against a massive military army, and, and God crushes the army. And if you want to go to something even more crazy, Jesus, the eternal son of God, becomes a man, gets nailed to a cross like a criminal, and on a piece of wood, naked, crucified as a criminal, though he wasn't, he brings restoration and salvation to the world. Beloved, beloved, God does not need favorable things to do what he does. And so we can't be looking around like, how, how dark is Miami how dark is your sins? Maybe I can calculate that. Like, you know, how convenient is the situation? How easy is the situation? How, you know, how many, how many resources do we have? Beloved, we are people that can live in the impossibilities because God is the God who does what he wants to things on the ground making no sense. That's what he does. He works through impossibilities, and we can't rationalize our way out. Listen, if God, I'll say this. If God's kingdom is all about the power of working through impossibilities, then we should be he said people, not we see and sense people, okay? What do we do as people? What do I see over there? What do I sense over there? Okay, okay, I think... I think I see and sense plausibility, so I'm going to trust you. No, no, we should be God said. God said, period. So you see mountains, God sees soccer balls, okay? I'm speaking metaphorically. You see mountains, God sees things to punt because he does what he wants. Not because we see and sense likelihood, but because he says that he works through unfavorable situations. I don't know about you, that is one of the most important things for me to embrace in my Christian life because everything I encounter, it seems impossible. It seems impossible for me just to even have a, a meal with my family without someone, you know, like going gangster on the other. I mean, it's impossible just to get in the car and drive somewhere without everyone going, you know, bananas in the car. Can y'all relate? I'm regularly facing impossibilities. I regularly see and sense. But God says that he does what he does, irrespective of unlikely. Thank him. There's a few more things I'd say. i got three more about how God works. He is effective through defective. He is effective through defective. Look, listen to this. So when he realizes, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were assembled and were praying. So, so Peter gets out of jail, and he goes to where the people were praying. Now, look what happens. This is really interesting. He knocked on the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter Boyce, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran inside and announced Peter was standing at the gateway. So, so she's like, Peter is like coming in, and she's just like, boom, and she goes and runs and tells everybody. And you know what they said? You're crazy. You're crazy. Let me keep reading before I unpack that. But he kept, she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, maybe it's his angel. 
like some weird uh, answer. Um, Peter, however, kept on knocking, and they opened the door. They saw him. They were astounded. They weren't like, oh, yeah, we've been praying. We know. They're like, wait a second. God actually did that? Now, why is that important? Because these people's prayers stunk, okay? <laughs> they didn't even believe that God answered their prayer when he did. Have you, can you relate to that? <laughs> these prayers were full of doubts. They were full of question marks. And when God actually moves, they don't even believe it happens. Why? Because God moves through unimpressive people in their brokenness, in their fickleness, in their smallness, trusting a big God who works irrespective of the kind of people that are trusting him. Let me give you a picture that may be helpful. (laughs) It's two people driving over a bridge. One person driving over the bridge, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know if I should be driving over this bridge. It looks a little old, and, 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 and that's one person. And the other person is driving over the bridge, you know, they're texting. They'd be good, okay? It doesn't matter how per- the one person drives over the bridge, right? What matters is the bridge you're driving over. So you can drive over the bridge really stoked about trusting the bridge, or you can drive over the bridge with a little bit of doubt. Beloved, that's us. Because who we trust is who he is. Because he is qualitatively awesome and amazing and powerful. Because we're trusting in him, the most important thing is who we trust, not how we trust, how impressive we're trusting, or who we are, but the God we trust through unimpressive trusters. You know what that means for us, practically speaking? It means that we should be unreasonably yet reasonably confident that God's going to work through our faith. We should be unreasonably, because it don't make no sense, like, (laughs) I'm a doubter, I'm inconsistent, but yet reasonably confident that God will do what he does as we trust him in the midst of all of our perplexities. Now, let me give you a picture that I don't have it with me, but there's uh, two ways you can write something. One is with a raggedy, old-school, number two pencil. Remember those? Do they even have those anymore? You know, it's kind of like got the rotted parts because you sharpen it so much. The other is a $200 ballpoint pen. Let me ask you a question. Can somebody write something very significant with either of those? Because it's not so much about what you're using, but who's using you. Guess what? God works through wooden, splintered, chipped, number two pencils because it's not, it don't matter what he's using, it matters the one who's using you. But here's how y'all think. I'm going to be a $200 ballpoint pen. Guess what? God's looking at the pencil box, and he's like, eh, I don't need that $200 pen. You know why? Because that makes the pen look important. I ain't about that. I use the unimpressive instruments that trust me to show that it's about the one using the instruments and not the instruments being used. That's us. Beloved, some of you guys need to really get over trying to make yourself an impressive instrument to give you confidence before God. That's not how it works. And we see that by these people with their 
pitiful prayers, doubting prayers, being the means by which God works and advances and moves things for his glory. I have two more things to say about when we see this backwards, paradoxical, up and down kingdom. What do we learn? This kingdom thrives on the end, not elevation of self. The end, not elevation of self. Let me read another long part of the text. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. So basically, all the people that were watching Peter, they got nixed. They got X'd out. Then Herod went down to Judea, to, to, to Caesarea, and he stayed there. And he'd been very angry with the Tyrians and the Sidonians. Together, they presented themselves before him. So the, so the King Herod, the, the one who locked up Peter and killed James, he's having a political gathering with some folks that he has you know, a jurisdiction over. Together, they presented themselves before him, and they won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and, and threw him the aster of peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So they're doing politics games. So on an appointed day, this is Herod, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. So, you know, Herod comes out with, like, you know, swag and attire and impressiveness. Now look what happens. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not a man. So an impressive human figure with power and prominence and swag comes out, and the people are like, it's God up there. Okay, watch what happens. <laughs> watch what happens. At once, an angel Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God, and he became infected with worms and died. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's the God of the Bible. Not the God in Christian bookstores and on Christian TV. That's the God of the Bible. He strikes you dead for playing God. Okay, all right. Then God's message flourished and multiplied after they had completed their relief mission. Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so what's the point of that? Why do we need to know that as a church? Here's the reason. The church thrives. The church excels. The church moves forward when men who are trying to promote themselves as saviors and heroes and rescuers and the reason for everything, when God kills man playing God, when man's prominence and man's centrality and man's supremacy and man's glory is squashed by the power of God, the church flourishes. Now, what's the opposite? When men playing God, men being the glorious center and purpose and hoorah, hoorah, celebrity, Hollywood, wow, look at these people. When that flourishes, the church is suffocated. But when God kills the elevation of man, the exaltation of man, the prioritization of man, God's thing flourishes. Now, let me, let, me, let me bring it down to the ground to you. Beloved, you should love 
the things in your life that is making you look smaller and God look bigger. And you should hate and run for your life from the things that make you look bigger and God smaller. You should love and say, these things in the house, these things in the church, these things in my life are making me feel smaller and I feel like God is bigger. You should be like, yes! God is dethroning the deification and God exaltation of me. He's making me, look, here's, here's what we tend to be. Like, like, if God's taking a picture, we're like over here and we kind of just like, right? You know, you, you want to get all close, right? What this text is saying is we should be backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. So we ain't even seeing the picture no more. We're just a speck in the back. I encourage you, beloved, whatever is making you smaller, whatever is making reconciled church smaller and making God look bigger is great. And whatever is its opposite is not great. So the church thrives when humans elevate themselves to be some kind of functional God is crushed. Here's the last thing I'd say. And um, it really is the last thing because I'm not, I don't have an application section at the end, okay? So God's backwards, up and down kingdom is obsessed about words. It's obsessed about words. So the last verse here is basically Luke is the author of Acts. He is given the summary. So all this stuff happened. What's the point? Look what he says. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking John, who was called Mark. Now, let me use a picture that, 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 that may be helpful before I unpack this a little bit more. So, how many of you guys, how many of you guys have, have, have spent a whole day with a woman? And a million things happen. And all they remember is three words. No one relates to that? There was three things that you said in that day that is the only thing that's taken away from the entire day. Okay? And there was a moment where she said something and she was looking for some kind of response and you said something like, you know, indifferent or not thoughtful. Those three words become defining of the whole day. I think this is kind of funny, but I don't know. Everyone's all quiet right now. <laughs> Acts right here is saying, look, all this stuff happened. Like, homeboy got killed. Someone went to jail. Out of jail. Miracle. Wow. The people prayed. Herod died, and all this stuff happened. And you know what? You know, he says, you know what? You know what this is all about? You know what the point is? Is that words about Jesus are flourishing. That's the point. The point is not they pray really impressively. The point is not, man, James died. Oh my gosh. And Herod died. Thank God, because he was such a bad dude. Oh, Peter got out. We got our miracle, our testimony. Yeah, the point is Jesus' words about his grace are thriving. That's the point, which is important. When people read the book of Acts, they get stuck in the miracle, and they, don't, they forget the fact that, listen, all these miracles are summarized by Jesus' words about his life for sinners, his death for sinners. His resurrection is now flourishing. That's the point. 
That's the point. So, beloved, I guess I would say is that do you think that you could say something like this? Listen, death is happening imprisonment is happening, disappointments is happening, chaos is happening, disappointment is happening. I'm getting smaller. I, I'm getting trampled. I feel suffocated. But, but in the midst of all these ashes, guess what? Words about Jesus are thriving. Words about Jesus are thriving through all of the ups and downs, through the contraries, through the lows, and the lows, the lows, and the highs. Words about Jesus are being Exalted, and I'm happy with that. That's what the church who understands these things is about. Beloved, I would say, listen, if you don't if if you want to if you want to inhibit yourself from enjoying this joy that God's words about Jesus are thriving, then just get stuck and obsessed with your victorious Christianity. Be that person. Be that person that's always wanting to have some high, some kind of, you know, and every time God wants to take you down and he wants to bring you low, pull the E-grade. Just be that person. Be stuck on your victorious, impressive, always flattering, amazing, spectacular, positive Christianity. Just get stuck there and you won't be able to be these people like, yes, God's word is flourishing and I can, I can, I can praise God. I can be joyous, not because my situation is joyous, not because life is convenient, not because life is easy, but through the ups and downs through life and death, through pain and struggle, Jesus Christ is being exalted. Because through the ups and downs, God is manifesting how awesome he is. Through the ups and downs. I never once, I'll just close with this illustration. One time someone told me, actually I can say this, where's, where's Dave at? Is he here? Oh, you know, what happened? This is your spot right here. Que pasó, man? All right, new day, new seat. <laughs> um, he was like, when all your friends uh, did what they did and, and y'all went through all those things and, and, and I saw you just to be a, a pitiful ball on the ground of dust and ashes. When I saw you trust Jesus through that, I'm like, God is sufficient. So he's saying that in you being in this pathetic, pitiful, broken, needy, lacking place, to me, I was like, God is awesome because he sustains people in balls of disappointments. God's words are flourishing. God's exaltation about his son is flourishing through the downs, not just the highs. And so we learn from this this impressive high moment in Acts 11 to this somber, difficult moment in Acts 12 is that God is glorious through the ups and downs. He is a paradoxical, otherworldly, amazing God who works through those things and doesn't need one or the other to do what he does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that, uh, that as this church experiences the highs of your providence, that we wouldn't get high on highs. We would, we would be thankful for them, God, and we would appreciate them. We come proud over them, Lord. 
And God, I pray that we would love and embrace the lows. That as you take us up, God, you take us right back down. Because you know what? Beneath all of the ups and downs, you are God. You are with us. You are above us. You are beneath us. You are around us. And you are for us. So, Lord, help, help this church. Help the saints here to embrace how you work in things like this. Amen.